Good evening. Welcome. It's good to have you all here. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. On, on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran of Plymouth, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series, it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. I'm thrilled you could be here. Uh, just a word about the flow for the evening. You'll hear from our speaker for the first 45 or 50 minutes. We'll take a short break for a couple of announcements, and then they'll have hopefully 15 or 20 minutes for open mic question and answer, and you'll be able to ask questions at the two microphones here. So I encourage you to be thinking about them. Uh, this is the middle of the ninth season of, of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. We have had a wide variety of topics over these past nine years, and uh, we're thrilled tonight to have someone who's going to talk, I have a feeling, about all kinds of different things, unemployment, gangs, uh, young people of today, Los Angeles. Many, many of you, I assume, heard him on Minnesota Public Radio this afternoon, perhaps. Uh, I was texting him afterwards and uh, telling him it's great to have him here. We'd actually not met until just a few minutes before this evening. Uh, he likes to drive himself around, and he texted back and said he's getting a lot of work done trying to assuage his guilt for being away from L.A. traveling. And while I understand that, I promise you we are thrilled that you are here. Will you help me welcome Father Gregory Boyle? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's a privilege to be with you here. Um, you know, I've, I've been in the Twin Cities and, and around Minnesota, you know, uh, in the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, so I apologize if some of you have heard me speak before. It happens. Uh, once I, I was invited to speak at an uh, annual gathering of foster grandparents in Los Angeles. Well, I'd spoken at it the summer before. And... Um, Afterwards, uh, a grandmother came up to me. I think she liked the talk. You know, she had big tears in her eyes, and she grabbed my hands, and she said, I heard you last year. <laughs> it never gets better. <laughs> so I suppose I'm delusional in thinking that she misspoke. I'm hoping she did. I... Uh, anyway, thank you for your uh, attendance and your attention. Uh, I had a, a, a very earnest gang member, uh, 16 years old, not long ago, stand in front of my desk and he says, look, I need your divided attention. <laughs> I said, well, you are in luck. <clears throat> and I suppose attention is sort of the first uh, step uh, toward choosing to be compassionate, uh, which... Uh, this seems to be the, the theme for tonight, faith and compassion. Uh, there's a vision that brings you here tonight, and I think it has exactly nothing to do with me. I, I think it has to do with our wildest longing and imagining that we want the world to look differently than it currently looks. And it's important to get in touch with what that vision might be. The prophet Habakkuk writes, the vision still has its time presses on to fulfillment, and it will not disappoint. And if it delays, wait for it. But because we're people of faith, we don't want to wait too long, you know, uh, with uh, con los brazos cruzados, you know, tapping our feet and staring at our watches. We want to make something happen. So I want to suggest something uh, this evening. What is it that we exactly want to make happen? 
I think uh, our goal that connects us is the desire to create a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. Mother Teresa, I think, diagnosed the world's ills correctly when she suggested that the problem in the world is that we've just forgotten that we belong to each other. So how do we stand against forgetting that? How do we together find a way to imagine a circle of compassion and then imagine that nobody is standing outside that circle? And to that end, what do we do? Well, we, we move out to the very edges of that circle and we stand with the folks on the margins, with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. We stand with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. Some days we're very fortunate and blessed to be able to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out. With the demonized, so that the demonizing will stop, and with the disposable, so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. I don't think that that's my call. I think that's our common call as members of the human race. I suspect that if kinship was our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice. We would, in fact, be celebrating it. So for the last uh, 25 years, I've worked with gang members in Los Angeles, and it's been the privilege of my life. And, and I think I've learned just about everything of value uh, from gang members. Uh, but nothing more valuable, really, than in the last couple of years, they've taught me how to text. And I'm so <laughs> grateful. Um, it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people, I'm finding. <laughs> And I'm pretty dexterous at it, you know, LOL and OMG and BTW, you know. And, and there's a new one the homies have taught me, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. <laughs> <clears throat> and I've been using that one quite a bit lately. And um, anyway, there I am with two homies, Manuel and Poncho, and we're driving to Palm Desert, which is about two hours uh, from... Uh, L.A. from Homeboy Industries. We meet at 9 o'clock in the morning. Manuel and Poncho are older vatos, been to prison, tattooed. They do a variety of things for me at Homeboy. I have 360 employees. And um, so we're going to go, they're going to help me give this talk. And uh, so we're in the car and Manuel's in the front seat and I can hear incoming a text. And he starts to read it and he chuckles. And I said, what is it? Oh, it's dumb. It's from Snoopy back at the office. Well, I'd just seen Snoopy. Snoopy greeted me in the morning like everybody does with a big abrazo. And um, Snoopy and Manuel worked together in the clock-in room where they clock in hundreds and hundreds of our workers uh, at Homeboy Industries. And I said, well, what's he say? Oh, gosh, hang on. It's dumb. Um, hey, dog, it's me, Snoops. Yeah, they got my ass locked up at county jail. They're charging me with being the ugliest vato in America. You have to come down right now. Show them they got the wrong guy. <laughs> well, we died laughing. And, and, and then I realized that Manuel and Snoopy are enemies. They're from rival gangs. They used to shoot bullets at each other. Now they shoot text messages. And there's a word for that, and the word 
is kinship. How do we find and seek and achieve a kind of compassion that can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it? We begin with service, and service, of course, is a good thing. Uh, But service is the hallway that leads to the ballroom. And the ballroom is kinship. That's where we want to get. Because no kinship, no peace. No kinship, no justice. And the measure of our compassion in the end lies not in our service of those on the margins, but in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with each other. In kinship with the folks who are on the margins. For there's an idea that's taken root in the world, it's at the root of all that's wrong with it, and the idea would be this, that there just might be lives out there that matter less than other lives. How do we stand against that idea? You know, one of the great privileges of my life uh, was knowing Cesar Chavez as a friend, and I remember a reporter had commented to him once, uh, wow, these farm workers, he says, they sure love you. And he shrugged and he smiled and he says, the feeling's mutual. And that's what we want. We want to arrive at a certain kind of mutuality in kinship. In service, there's a distance, even in service. Service provider, service recipient. You want to bridge even that. And that's the hope. Uh, I remember there was a homie named Caesar who nobody got more jobs through Homeboy Industries than this guy. And... um, you know, he, he would just work for a while for me, or sometimes in the private sector when we found something for him. But he would always sort of gravitate back to vague criminality, usually getting high or selling drugs. And, and he'd get popped again, go back to jail. Well, this one time he'd finished a kind of a four-month stretch of violation and was in jail and came out. And 25 years old at this point, and, and uh, it was kind of frustrating. And a funny kid, very smart kid with a dangerous sense of humor... And he's sitting right in front of me, and he says what homies often say, this time it'll be different. And I go, oh, all right. So I pick up the phone with him right there, and I call a friend of mine who runs a vending machine company in Alhambra, California. And he hires Caesar right on the spot. Well, two weeks later, Caesar's in my office, and he's proudly waving his very first paycheck at the vending machine company. And he says, damn, gee, this paycheck, it makes me feel proper. I mean, my mom, she's proud of me, and my kids, they're not ashamed of me. And you know who I have to thank for this job. And I said, well, gosh, who? And he looked at me strangely, and he said, well, God, of course. Oh, no, no, sure. (laughs) No, 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 that's right. Mm, Yeah. That's right, God. He said, you thought I was going to say you, didn't you? Oh, God. No, God, absolutely is number one. He said, you are so lucky we're not living in them Genesis days. I said, I'm sorry, them Genesis days? He said, yeah, because God would have been had struck down your ass already by now. Well, we died, we fell out of our chairs and suddenly kinship so quickly... It's not about service provider and service recipient. It's about us. 
There is no us and them. How do we obliterate once and for all the illusion that we're separate? There's just us. I never felt this more keenly in my own life than uh, uh, some years ago, uh, struggling a little bit uh, with uh, leukemia and went through chemotherapy. And, and I'm feeling pretty good at the moment, uh, battling a cold. But other than that, I'm good. Or as the homies always say, I hear your cancer's in intermission. I said, yeah, apparently it stepped out to the lobby to buy popcorn. Uh, may the line be long. Uh, but this news, uh, you know, was, uh, appeared on the front page of the Sunday LA Times, so homies came out of the woodwork, you know, and, and very sweet, you know, uh, for as uncomfortable as that period was in my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, I remember uh, a homegirl named China left me a voicemail message. Now it's our turn to take care of you. Very sweet. Big, huge homie named Grumpy. Six foot five, standing in front of my desk. Huge tears in his eyes. Apparently, God had forgotten to give him a neck. And um, he says, what do I have that you need? You know, meaning organs. Uh, I was so happy to tell him I didn't need any of his organs, you know. But it was the thought that counted. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, uh, late in the game and uh, during my chemo, uh, a little 15-year-old, yes, Lord? <laughs> but I just started. I haven't been speaking long. I, um, uh, so this little 15-year-old gang member came in and, um, and, you know, I used to come to my office after chemo. Uh, the homies always would vie to drive me to my chemotherapy. And, and then they would want to pick me up, you know, and, and clearly that trip to and from the hospital was more harrowing than chemotherapy itself. But, uh, but so I'd come in the afternoon after a homie would pick me up, and I'd just kick it, you know, and, well, this kid comes in. He looks positively stricken. I'm behind my desk. He sits down, and he says, I hear you have leukemia. I said, yeah, I do. And there's this awkward silence, you know. My cat had leukemia. Yeah. She died. <laughs> I said, oh, gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. I, I, awfully glad you stopped by. It just picked me up right there. Well, my all-time favorite was a homie named uh, Robert. We all called him Loco. And Loco uh, called me from jail, collect. And, um, and he just read it in the Sunday LA Times. Hey, what's up with this leukemia anyway? And I said, well, it's cancer. It's in the blood. The doctor says my white count's too high. <laughs> doctors, they don't be knowing nothing. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, hello? Of course your white count's high. <laughs> so. So I just accept more collect calls from jail and decided to call it a second opinion. Or better, kinship, I guess, that there's a mutuality there, that we're in this together. Homeboy Industries was born uh, during the time I was uh, pastor of the poorest parish in the city of Los Angeles, uh, Dolores Mission, nestled in the middle of two public housing projects, Pico Gardens and Aliso Village, and together they comprised the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. We had eight gangs there, which is unheard of in public housing, uh, that you would have that many in such a tiny area, making it, according to the LAPD, the place of the highest concentration 
of gang activity in all of Los Angeles. I didn't know this when I was assigned there. I buried my first young person uh, killed because of the sadness in 1988, and uh, I buried my 180th uh, two weeks before this past Christmas. So, not all of them from that community, but I, I know a lot of gang members I get asked to do this. So, the first thing we did is we started a school um, because there were so, so many middle school age, junior high age kids who had been given the boot from their home school. Nobody wanted them. So, I walked in the projects and I said, hey, if I found a school that would take you, uh, would you go? And the gang members would say, yeah, to my surprise. And then I couldn't find a school that would take them, you know. So, so we had to start a school. And that brought, uh, I asked the nuns in the convent if they would mind so much, like, moving out. And, uh, <laughs> and they seemed okay with that. And so we turned it into a school. And, um, and that brought gang members to the church property, which, you know, kind of upset the apple cart. I mean, after all, aren't churches supposed to be? hermetically sealed, you know, good people in, bad people out. And so that was a good challenge for us. And then the homies kept saying, if only we had jobs. And uh, so myself and the women in the parish, it was mainly women, um, we marched to, uh, to all the factories that surrounded the, the housing projects, at, uh, trying to find felony-friendly employers, you know, and that wasn't so forthcoming. And so we couldn't wait. So by 1992, we started our first business. We didn't know it would be our first of many, but it was our first, Homeboy Bakery, an old Torah bakery across the street from the church. A month later, we started Homeboy Tortillas in the Grand Central Market in downtown L.A. Once we had plural, um, you know, we came up with the highfalutin name of Homeboy Industries, as if there was any industry involved in this venture. And, and, and uh, then we were off and running. And not everything worked, you know. Uh, homeboy plumbing was not a huge success. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, people didn't want gang members in their homes. I, I did not see that coming. <laughs> and now, you know, we didn't intend to be this, but we've backed our way into uh, becoming the largest gang intervention rehab and reentry program in the country. And we get about 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors. Um, keep in mind, there are 1,100 gangs in L.A. County, 86,000 gang members. So it's a pretty vexing, daunting thing. So uh, at this point, after almost a quarter of a century, we do a lot of things. We offer every imaginable curricular thing, from anger management to uh, uh, parenting to grief and loss, you name it, N-A-A-A, G-E-D. We still have a school um, we have free tattoo removal, uh, three laser machines, 29 volunteer doctors, a dedicated clinic in our new headquarters, um, 800 laser treatments uh, a month. Um, let's see, what else do we have? We have solar panel installation training program. We have Homeboy Bakery still, Homeboy Silk Screen, Homeboy Homegirl Merchandise where we sell our logo stuff, Homeboy Diner, the only place you can get food in City Hall. Uh, we're going to have another homeboy cafe, a homeboy cafe in the um, new LAX uh, terminal uh, by the summer. We sell chips and salsas in uh, two huge uh, supermarket chains in Southern California. Uh, what am I missing? And Homegirl Cafe, where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude, 
will gladly take your order. Uh, my favorite story of the last year happened when Oscar-winning actress Diane Keaton showed up for lunch. Uh, she of Annie Hall and the Godfather movies. She shows up for the very first time with a regular, a guy who's there uh, once a week. And her waitress this day is Glinda. And Glinda's a homegirl, been there, done that, tattooed, been to prison, felon, parolee. She doesn't know who Diane Keaton is. And so she's taking her order, and Diane Keaton says, well, what do you recommend? And Glinda rattles off the three platillos that she really likes. And, and Diane Keaton, oh, I like that second one. I'll have that. And then something then dawns on Glinda. She looks at Diane Keaton. She says, wait a minute. I, I feel like I know you from somewhere. You know, like, I don't know, maybe we've met before. And Diane Keaton decides to deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I suppose I have one of those faces, you know, that people think they've seen before. And then Glinda goes, no, now I know. We were locked up together. <laughs> you know, that just took my breath away when I heard it. And, and I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings, come to think of it, <laughs> since then. But suddenly, kinship so quickly, Oscar-winning actress, attitudinal waitress, exactly what God had in mind. And if we're interested in knowing what that is, uh, Jesus says it, I think, very succinctly, that you may be one. That's it. I suppose he could have been more self-referential. It's about us. It's about oneness. It's about an invitation to kinship. All of us are called to be what uh, Alice Miller, the late great child psychologist, calls enlightened witnesses, uh, people who through their kindness and tenderness and focused attentive love return people to themselves. You don't hold the bar up and ask anybody to measure up. You just show up and you hold the mirror up and you tell people the truth, knowing that your truth is my truth and my truth is a gang member's truth and it's all the same truth. And here's the truth. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then you watch folks on the margins in particular become that truth. You watch them inhabit that truth and no bullet can pierce it. No four prison walls can keep it out. And death can't touch it because it's huge. But uh, part of our task is to reach in and to dismantle the messages of shame and disgrace that get in the way, that keep people from seeing the truth. Uh, Marcus Borg, the great scripture scholar, says that the principal suffering of the poor throughout history and throughout scripture is shame and disgrace. And I think he's quite right. Um, tomorrow I'll be missing one of my masses in camp. I, I'm in 25 different detention facilities where I say uh, mass as a priest um, in 20 um, probation camps, juvenile halls, youth authority facilities, jails, and on a rotating basis. Um, and so usually on these things, I've, I go out into the boondocks and I do maybe two masses in two different camps. And then I race back to Dolores Mission because I've been in that, lived in that parish for 
25 years, so I know a lot of people. So I get asked to do things, and it's usually, you know, the, my Saturdays almost always look identical. You know, a 1 o'clock baptism, 2 o'clock quinceanera when a girl turns 15, 3 o'clock wedding, 4 o'clock exorcism. Um, <laughs> I'm just checking to see if you're still listening to me. <laughs> Periodically, you got to check, you know, and I've never done one of those. But anyway, I... I raced home one uh, Saturday from, from these camps, and I, it was 20 minutes to 1 in my 1 o'clock baptism. And I thought, well, I got time to go check my mail. So I go to my office. I'm all by myself, contento, feliz, reading my mail, when all of a sudden this woman comes barging into my office. I find out later her name is Lisa. She's uh, about 30 years old. I've seen her around. She's kind of a famous uh, street person. Uh, she's something of a, a famous uh, gritona, as we say in Spanish. She's always screaming. She's always yelling. Uh, and she's a peleonera. She's always fighting. You can hear her being tossed out of the bar next door uh, during the day, every day. Uh, and then she's screaming at the guy who tosses her out. You can see, hear her and see her on First Street screaming into a payphone, just let me stay tonight yelling to family or friends. And this is the very first time she's ever chosen to step foot in my office. And uh, now I notice it's seven minutes to one in my one o'clock baptism. She comes, barrels right in. I'm behind my desk. She plunks herself down. She launches right in. I need help. Ooh, I've been to like 50 rehabs. I'm known all over, nationwide. I went to Catholic schools all my life, graduated from elementary. I even graduated from Sacred Heart High School in Lincoln Heights. And then she gets quiet and still, and she says, in fact, the first time I ever used heroin was right after I graduated. And I've been trying to stop since the moment I began. And I watched as she leaned her head on the wall behind her and her eyes became like two ponds, water rising to meet its edges and spilling over. And she cried and she cried until finally she leveled her eyes on me and she said with great deliberation, I am a disgrace. And suddenly her shame meets mine. Because when I had seen her step into my office that afternoon, I had mistaken her for an interruption. It's mutual. The Acts of the Apostles tells us what kind of community we ought to aspire to. And it has a line I had never heard of before when it says this, and awe came upon everyone. I, I gave a training in uh, Richmond, Virginia and uh, had two homies with me, two 600 social workers. We spoke all day long. And one of them, a, a guy named Jose got up. He was 27 years old, been to prison, drug addict, gang member, tattooed felon, homeless for a long stretch. And he got up and, and he began his story. I'd never heard his story before. 
And he said, uh, very offhandedly, well, I guess you could say my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I think I was six years old when she looked at me and she said, why don't you just kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. Well, the whole audience gasped. And then he says, it sounds way worser in Spanish. Then he says, I guess I must have been nine when she drove me to the deepest part of Baja California and we walked into an orphanage and she said, I found this kid. And she left me there 90 days until my grandmother could get out of her where she had dumped me and picked me up. She beat me every single day as a child with things you could imagine and a lot of things you couldn't imagine. In fact, I wore three t-shirts every single day. The first t-shirt because the blood would seep through. And then second t-shirt because you could still see it. Third t-shirt, you couldn't see it. Kids at school would make fun of me. Hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three t-shirts? And then he buckles under the weight of this and he says... I wore three t-shirts well into my adult years because I didn't want to look at my wounds. But now I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my wounds. My wounds are my friends. I can't help anybody at Homeboy in their healing if I don't welcome my wounds and awe came upon everyone. How do we move to awe and away from judgment? Just us, it's just us. And how do we seek to dismantle these messages of shame and disgrace so that people can be returned to themselves? Um, because of the book that I've written, I get invited sometimes to universities uh, who have decided to force their students to read it, you know. And um, so uh, one of these trips I was, um, I went to Gonzaga University, which is my alma mater, and I brought two homies with me, Mario, a uh, Latino gang member, and Bobby, African-American gang member. In fact, they were enemies. And I've taken lots of homies, hundreds and hundreds of homies and homegirls on trips and you can read about it in the book. I have a couple of those in there. But um, I've never taken a more panicky, terrified flyer than this guy Mario. I mean, hyperventilating, absolutely terrified. I thought we wouldn't be able to get him on the plane. I'd have to call the paramedics or something. Um, big, tall, drink of water, skinny gang member. Uh, but about 25 years old, very terrified of the whole prospect. So we flew out of Burbank to Spokane, and Burbank is a smaller airport, so it's, it's on the tarmac, and you climb up the stairs to get in the plane. And you can see the planes arrive, and it's Southwest Airlines, and, and the plane arrives, and we're by the window, and he's just terrified. And I see, it's early in the morning, I see two flight attendants, females, walking up, climbing up the front steps with huge cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're walking up the steps. And then Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? And I said, as soon as they sober up the pilot, they're... they're um, <laughs> All right, maybe I shouldn't have said this. <laughs> so I should tell you that Mario is about the most tattooed uh, gang member 
ever to have worked at Homeboy. He's completely covered his arms, his neck, his face. I mean, it's unbelievable. Well, you know, I'd never been out in public with him, and I noticed how everybody reacted. People recoiled. You know, mothers were vaguely clutching their kids a little more closely, and, and it was interesting to watch. But I should tell you also that Mario is about the kindest, most tender, gentlest, angelic gang member I've ever met, though the packaging might suggest otherwise, you know. He's so kind, and he's so courteous, and he's so polite and effusive as he thanked people everywhere we were, like on the, on the plane itself, as terrified as he was, you know, the flight attendant handed him peanuts, you know, and, and he grabbed them and grabbed her hand and looked her in the eyes, and, and he says, thank you so much, like that, very effusive. So we get to Spokane, and, and, and there's a big talk, like at night, like this, but there are a lot of little talks, class, class, luncheon, class, meeting, class. I said, I'm not going to give any of those. You guys are going to give those talks. Oh, no, we were, just tell your stories, you know. And so I sat in the back of the room at all those talks, and I thought, wow, you know, these stories are incredible. So painful, violence and addiction and uh, abuse and torture. If the stories had been aflame, you couldn't get too close, otherwise you'd be scorched. And I, the nighttime came and it packed, thousand people, uh, students, uh, you know, sitting on the floor, standing room, violation of fire code. And, um, and so I did my 45 minutes, but I told him, I said, each of you are going to give your five minutes. And Mario in particular was t- completely terrified to do this in front of all these people. I said, you're great. So I do my thing. They each do their five minutes. And then it's question and answer. Yes, ma'am. And a woman stands up, up, up in front. Yeah, this first question's for Mario. And Mario gets to the microphone. Yes. And he's completely petrified. She goes, you said that you have two, uh, a boy and a girl, a son and a daughter, and they're entering their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? What advice do you give them? And Mario thinks for a while, and he wants to give the right answer. And, and he says, he just blurts out, I just, and then he stops. And his eyes fill up with tears, and he says, I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's a silence. And the woman sits, stands right up, and she says, why wouldn't you want them to turn out like you? You are kind, you are gentle, you are loving, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand people stand, and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand, so overwhelmed at the sight of a thousand total perfect strangers returning him to himself. And I think that's the only praise God has any interest in. And so we inch our way out to the margins with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless because we want the circle of compassion to widen. And while you're standing out there, you brace yourself 
because people will accuse you of wasting your time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. And isn't that the job description of all of us here but to make those voices heard? In the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And yeah, it's about Jesus, and yeah, it's about Christmas. But how was that not the job description of everybody in this church? You appear, the soul feels its worth. Uh, a homie most resistant to all my offers of help uh, was a, a homie everybody called Bandit. And, uh, you know, he earned his name. He, you know, he was a bandit. He was, uh, I, I'd ride my bike in the middle of the night to the housing projects, and I'd see him there, and uh, he'd be running up to a car selling crack cocaine, and then he'd uh, walk away counting his money, and then he'd see me standing with his other homies in the darkness of an archway, and... and uh, and I'd say something like, how about a real job? And he was always very polite. Oh, that's okay, gee, thanks, though. <laughs> Until one day, 15 years ago, Bandit shows up in my office, and I couldn't believe he was there. And he says what gang members often say, I'm tired of being tired. So I walked Bandit that day to one of our four job developers who find jobs in the outside. And uh, as luck would have it, he finds a job for him. Entry-level, unskilled, low-pay warehouse, a first kind of job. Now cut to today, Bandit runs the place. He's the supervisor of all the supervisors. He owns his own home. He's married. He has three kids. Um, well, I hadn't heard from him in like two years, and uh, no news is good news, usually with gang members. And, and he calls me on a Friday afternoon um, very panicky, you know, kind of breathless. He says, gee, you got to bless my daughter. And I said, ¿Qué pasó, Michael? What's up? Is she sick or is she in the hospital? Oh, no, no. On Sunday, she's going to Humboldt College. Imagine my Jessica. She's going to college. But she's a little chaparita and we're afraid for her because Humboldt, that's way up north. It's far and she's moving away. Do you think you maybe could give her a blessing before she goes? And he goes, are you kidding me? I'd be honored. Look, tomorrow's Saturday. I have an exorcism at one. <laughs> I'm just checking again. Uh, why don't you guys come at 1230 and we'll do a little send-off. And, uh, you know, we'll give her a blessing. And sure enough, at 1230, Bandit and his wife and the three kids, including tiny little Jessica, show up. And so, you know, I say, well, let's stand in front of the altar and uh, let's put um, Jessica in the middle. Let's surround her with our bodies and our love and, and uh, everybody touch her, connect to her, grab her, her arm and go ahead, put your hand on her shoulder. Go ahead, put your hand on her head. And I say, you know, bow your heads and close your eyes. And as the homies say, I do a long ass prayer. I go on and on. And, <laughs> and somewhere in the middle of this thing, I notice we've all become chiones, you know, which means we start to cry. Everybody's crying. I don't know why we're crying. 
except maybe for the fact that Bandit and his wife do not know anybody who's ever gone to college except me. Certainly nobody in their families. So, you know, we kind of wipe our tears and we laugh about how mushy and sentimental we got. And, and so to change the subject, I turned to Jessica. Hey, what are you going to study at Humboldt College? Forensic psychology, she says. I go, damn, forensic psychology. <laughs> and Bandit chimes in, yeah, she wants to study the criminal mind. And Jessica, very deadpan, turns, looks at her father, and she does one of these, you know. <laughs> and he sees her, and he laughs. Yeah, I'm going to be her first subject. <laughs> so we go up to the car, and big abrazos, and everybody piles in the car. But Bandit hangs back, and I'm glad he has. And I said, hey, can I tell you something? I give you credit for the man you've chosen to become, for choosing to walk in your own footsteps. I'm proud of you. And his eyes well up with tears, and he says, Sabes que? I'm proud of myself. All my life, people called me a low life, a bueno para nada, a good for nothing. I guess I showed them. I said, Yeah, I guess you did. And the soul feels its worth. Exactly right. Uh, I'm going to just tell one more story and then uh, we'll open it up for question and answer. Uh, before I do that, I want to th uh, thank you for your hospitality. Uh, thank you for having my books for sale out there. We always want to support local independent booksellers. Uh, um, so, you know, Christmas is right around the corner, so if you want to buy like 10 copies of that book... <laughs> You know, and if suddenly the book becomes Tuesdays with Homie or uh, <laughs> The Purpose Driven Homie or Three Cups of Homeboy, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, since all my proceeds go to Homeboy Industries and keeping my doors open is uh, kind of quite the concern. So, you know, if somebody says, hey, could I borrow that tattoos book? Just look them in the eye with great tenderness and say, buy your own damn book, you know, and... <laughs> I think that's fair. Is that too much to ask? Um, you know, the book came out, I don't know, in March uh, 2010 at this point, the hardcover, and I'm, I'm sitting in my office with six homeboys at the end of the day, and I'm opening up the mail, we're laughing and talking, and, and I'm opening, multitasking, I'm giving them my divided attention, and, um, I'm, and I, oh well, my gosh, here's the book. So, you know, the, your editor sends you your copy of the book, and so I'm passing it around, and they're devouring it. They want to flip through to see if their names are in it, you know, and, and the, the lawyer at Simon & Schuster forced me to, um, you know, change all the names. But anyway, my editor got all these nice people to say nice things. So Annie Lamott's on the cover, and then uh, uh, Marion Wright Edelman is on the back, and uh, Carrie Kennedy, a variety of people. And, and she got Jack Cornfield, who's just a great philosopher and a Buddhist and a psychologist, uh, who I recommend his books to you. And he has a couple sentences, you know, the blurbs they have, you know. And, and the first sentence was just effusive adjectives that I'll spare you. But the second sentence began this way. Um, Father Boyle, the Gandhi of the gangs. <laughs> well, when the book arrives in the hands of Pascual, Pasqui, we all call him Pasqui. 
And Bosky, a homie I've known for 100 years, and he, you know, I knew him in the projects when he was a knucklehead. He went on and graduated from college. He runs our parenting division. But I didn't know this. Part of his job description, uh, apparently, was to take me down a notch. So, um, so he sees this Jack Cornfield quote, and he goes, the Gandhi of the gangs. Like, this is way over the top, you know. So the next day he emails me, and he says, here's a blurb for your book. This book is astonishing. Father Boyle is the Sarah Palin of the gangs. In fact, he can see Mexico from his back porch. I immediately uh, forwarded it to my editor, and I said, please, I beg you, put this on the paperback edition. And she just sent back OHN. Oh, hell no. <laughs> well, anyway. Final story. Uh, this story anticipates a question, probably. Uh, people always ask me about gang members' enemies who work side by side with each other, and it's, at first it's difficult, for sure. Uh, but a homie will come in. Our program is not for those who need help. It's only for those who want it. You have to walk in the door like rehab. It doesn't work otherwise if somebody drags you in. And so a homie comes in and, and he says, I'm ready. I, I don't want any part of this anymore. Okay. Uh, I have an opening in the bakery, but you have to work with X, Y, and Z. And I rattle off the names of enemies, rivals, that he'll have to work with. And they always do the exact same thing. They think for a long time. They go, well, Okay. I'll work with them. I'm not going to talk to them. You know, which used to bother me in the old days until you discover, of course, that it is impossible to demonize people you know. You just, human beings can't sustain it. So I had this kid uh, named Youngster, a little tiny guy from this one gang, and everybody called him Youngster. And uh, so I thought he was ready. So I bring him to our homeboy um, uh, Silkscreen Factory, which is our biggest, most successful business. Uh, it's about 18 years old now. Uh, we have 2,500 customers from across the country. Um, High-quality work, reasonably priced. We UPS to Plymouth, Minnesota. Um, so, uh, so I walk him in there, and, and I introduce him to like 30 of his coworkers, and. Um, so, you know, he's shaking hands with everybody, looking them in the eyes, even enemies. And I'm thinking, wow, this is great. Until he gets around the bend to the very last guy, a guy who seems to be avoiding this encounter, uh, who they called Puppet. And when Puppet and Youngster are in each other's vicinity, they mumble something, they stare at their shoes, they don't shake hands. Well, I know they're enemies because... Uh, you know, I know what gangs they hail from, but he just finished shaking hands with other enemies. I discovered later that this is a hatred that is so personal and deep that neither of them think they can really get past it. So I sense that much at the moment. And, uh, um, and so I look at him and I say, look, if you guys can't hang working with each other, let me know. I got a bunch of people who would love this job. And they don't say anything. Well, six months later, a puppet uh, goes to a store not far from his house, and he buys something. It's a corner store. 
And then on his way home, for some reason, he decides to take a shortcut and he ducks into an alley. And because he's taken this unexpected detour, suddenly he's surrounded by 10 members of a rival gang, 10 against one. They beat him badly. He falls to the ground, and while he's lying there, they will not stop kicking his head until he's lifeless. Somebody finds his body, then takes him to White Memorial Hospital, where he's declared effectively brain dead. But it's the policy there to keep you connected to machines for 48 hours so they can get two days of a flat read, and, and then the doctors sign the death certificate. This allowed family and friends to gather. I was at St. Louis University giving a talk. I flew home. I've seen a lot of horrible things in my life, but nothing to compare to the sight of this young man with his head swollen many, many times its size. It was horrifying. You could barely train your eyes on him. And at the end of the 48-hour period, I said a blessing prayer over him. I gave him la unción de los enfermos, anointed his forehead with oil. And uh, at the end of the 48 hours, we, we disconnected. And uh, a week later, I buried him. But in the first 24 hours, I'm uh, alone in my office. It's 8.30 at night. And the phone rings and it's youngster, Puppet's co-worker at the silkscreen. Hey, he says. That's messed up about what happened to Puppet. I said, yeah, it is. And then with a certain kind of eagerness even, he says, is there anything I can do? Can I give him my blood? And we both fall silent under the weight of it until he breaks the silence, choking back his tears. And he says, with great deliberation, he was not my enemy. He was my friend. We worked together. Now, can I say that always happens at Homeboy Industries? Yes. Any exceptions? No. And it shouldn't surprise us that God's own dream come true for us, that we be one, just happens to be our own deepest longing for ourselves. It turns out It's mutual. For the vision still has its time, presses on to fulfillment, and will not disappoint. And if it delays, we wait for it. Thank you very much.
I won't talk long, I promise. We'll get to the Q&A, but just a couple. Well, first of all, thank you. Wonderful. I'm not surprised. Uh, let me just draw your attention to a couple things. Uh, one is our next event, <clears throat> which is with a very different topic, but should be really good. Hillary Lunke, who's a local homegrown professional uh, golfer, won the US Open and the LPGA. That'll be Friday, March 9th, <clears throat> also here at 7 o'clock. And I never, in fact, I, I think I can safely say I've never plugged another non-Faith and Life event at a Faith and Life event. But if you're interested in the St. John's Bible, some of you may be familiar with the St. John's Bible, uh, initiated by St. John's University in Collegeville, but made in Wales, primarily with some local uh, artists as well. We're having a, a presentation about that here in the sanctuary next Wednesday. Uh, that's February 8th, I believe, at 7 o'clock. It's free and open to the public. It'll be a wonderful night. So if you're interested in the St. John's Bible, join us for that. Uh, if you would like us to alert you about upcoming events, the easiest way for us to do that is for you to give us your email, which you can do either on this green sheet or by going to the Faith and Life website and um, entering your email there. You can leave these green sheets uh, in the baskets that are in the, the narthex. Uh, if you're on Facebook, we'd also love for you to uh, like us on Facebook, and you can find that. Uh, information here. Uh, we're able to offer these events and have now for nine and a half years free and open to the public. You do not have to pay to come. Uh, thanks to the generous, uh, uh, wonderful support of all of our individual and corporate sponsors. They are listed uh, in your program there. Uh, and I'm not going to read all the names, obviously. Uh, I will mention uh, Thrivent Financial Crossroads has been our strongest supporter for a number of years. Productivity Inc., Luther Seminary, TCF, uh, Leaders, uh, McLaurin, Fuzzy Duck Design in the Bookcase, uh, the oldest independent bookstore, uh, as well as the countless individuals who support this. Many of them are here tonight, and they deserve our thanks. Would you help me thank them? <laughs> You may not know this, but his book is available. <laughs> Did you mention that? You may have mentioned that. I'm not sure. In passing, yeah. And he's happy to inscribe them. Uh, and I'm going to say one final thing, and then we'll do a Q&A. Again, you can just come to these microphones in the aisles. Uh, one of the questions I get more than just about any is, where do you get the ideas for these speakers? And oftentimes, there's not a good answer for that. But in the case of tonight's speaker, there's a very specific answer. Uh, if you have come to these events for any period of time at all, you will know that our guitarist, Jeff Elstad, who is sitting right over there, has been with us from the very start. He's been at pretty much every single event, and even the one or two that he's missed, we've played his music on a CD. He sent me this book uh, anonymously. I didn't even real realize it was from him until we talked a while later. This is quite a while ago now. Um, and so it was his initiative, really, that got the ball rolling on this. So. Jeff, all of us, thank you for. All right, I'm going to shut up now, and you can have some time for Q&A. You know, I find sometimes that people get shy, you know, like they got to get out of your row and come up here. So if you just go like this and belt it out, yeah, and then I'll repeat the question if you're timid. Hi, Jeff. Well, uh, yeah, I'm a, a Jesuit priest, and until the, uh, this pope or anyone after it changes that idea, um, that's the idea. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, 
obviously, I, 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 uh, we're not speaking for the Vatican here. I think it would be certainly a, a wiser thing for uh, the church to have kind of a, a, a more expansive, spacious view of this. You know, that would be my hope. Um, but, you know, I've been a Jesuit for 40 years, and, uh, and it's been the joy of my life to live in community. Uh, I joined the Jesuits because they were hilarious and prophetic and... And that's a combo burger that I liked, you know. So, you know, they, they were the funnest, most joyful human beings I'd ever been around. And this was during the Vietnam War when they, um, you, know, uh, you know, Daniel Berrigan and people like that and Jesuits would drag me to protests. And I thought, yeah, I, I want to I be with these people. So uh, I don't think it's ever about uh, what have you been denied. It's about the joy today and delighting in the people in front of you and I would not train my life for anybody's. Yes, ma'am. I, um, I do get nervous in a microphone, so I'm sorry if I stumble over my words. Okay. I work as a nurse uh, here in the metro area at a level one trauma center. So I see a lot of similar stories to what you shared as your last story. I'm just wondering what advice you have um, for people who work closely with gang members that either don't seem to want help, it's hard not to get jaded in my job, mm -hmm. and it's hard to find that compassion and kinship um, when we see so much yeah. violence. I'm just wondering how you could speak to that. Yeah. Well, again, anyway, uh, compassion is somehow passing over into the experience of other people. Any way you can do that. Um, what language is gang violence speaking? You know, it's about a lethal absence of hope. Uh, I was, uh, you know, people want it to be about morality. People want to know about, they want it to be about right and wrong. And I wish it were that, because then it would be easy. But it isn't about that. It's a language. Uh, the kids I know who go on missions, forays into enemies, enemy territories, I, the shooters I know, are never kids who are hoping to kill. They're always hoping to die. And, and the profile of any gang member is always the same. You know, they're either deeply, profoundly despondent, or they're hugely, wildly traumatized and damaged, or they're mentally ill. That profile should move anybody of faith, it seems to me, to compassion. But, it, but you're, if you're stuck, if people get stuck in this place of, you know, this, they don't know the difference between right and wrong, then we're striking a high moral distance that will always keep us jaded. You know, um, I, I was on... Uh, the Dr. Phil show, and they had dedicated the show to Homeboy Industries, you know, and, um, and you're working with the producers months in ahead to, oh, no, don't do that, and you're talking them down from crazy ideas, and, and you think you've succeeded, and then you're there. And it's an audience, although it's a tape show, it's a live audience, and, and I hear Dr. Phil, you know, I, I'm off stage, and ladies and gentlemen, Father Greg Boyle, I walked out there, and he's sitting in a stool, and an empty stool awaits me next to him. But to my horror on the stage, on his side of the stage, anybody see this show? No. Good, you're hardworking, you're not home watching. 
uh, Dr. Phil. But on one side, this says everything about you that you haven't watched the show. But anyway, on one side of the stage is the most beautiful mahogany coffin on wheels. And on my side of the stage is a perfectly reconstructed jail cell with a bed, a toilet, and a sink. They went to great expense to do this. So you already know where this is going. They fly in poor kids, 15, 14, 16, who are gravitating perilously close to gang involvement. And, um, and then he sort of figuratively grabs them by the lapel and uh, he says, don't you see that this choice you've made will either lead here or here, to death or to prison? And, and one by one, they trot these kids out with their very distraught single mothers. And he did this over and over again. Finally, I said, Phil, these kids know this better than we do. They're not waiting for more information. They know this will end in death or prison. They don't care whether it'll end in death or prison. That's a hugely important diagnostic moment. It's about a lethal absence of hope. Kids are not seeking anything when they join a gang. They're always fleeing something. Always. Guaranteed. Gangs are the places kids go in some cities. Where, where it, or they're fleeing their own misery, and misery loves company, and that's what gangs are about. It's not about kids who have somehow their moral compass is out of whack. It's a language. And, and so our task is to infuse a sense of hope to kids for whom hope is foreign, and the only delivery system I know of for hope are loving, caring adults who show up and pay attention. Kindness works. Parentheses. Uh, I'm in all these uh, detention facilities, camps and stuff, and they're kind of, you know, packed with gang members. So I, I'm, I'm in, a, in a gym with 100 gang members, and I finish my service. I finish mass. And uh, so the homies gather around, and they're talking, and I'm taking off my alb and everything. And, and a homie says, Hey! I saw you on Oprah. I go, well, no, actually, it was Dr. Phil. He go, oh, I said, yeah, I confuse those two all the time, you know. <laughs> and this kid over here said, you were on Dr. Phil? I said, yeah. Fighting with your wife? <laughs> I said, yeah, but you know, his advice has really kicked in, and we're doing much better now, you know. <laughs> Anyway, I, did I see somebody getting up? Yes. Or holler it out, sure. Well, I would have a question. Yeah. Well, I, I think you support Brotherhood Brew. You know, this is in St. Paul. And I just heard about them tonight, you know, and... And these are, are, are programs that, you know, you can kind of in, get connected with these folks up here, you know, act locally. But part of the thing is, um, you know, if you're an employer, hire somebody. You know, who would Jesus hire? Well, I, we all know who Jesus would hire. 
Jesus would hire the person who's absolutely at the lowest place right now. The person no one will consider hiring because they have a record, they're a felon, they're a gang member, they're tattooed. That's what you, that's what you do. That's where you begin, I think. But you also, well, sure, go ahead. <laughs> um, especially now, because employment is, is so helpful, obviously. And right now, the pool of uh, you know, the unemployed is so huge. And just today, you heard the president talking about a whole other layer of unemployed are, are returning veterans. And obviously, we want to invest in their future employment. So the last people considered would be the folks who I deal with every day. And so we've got to find our moral place and say, yeah, I don't need another worker. I can barely afford another worker. Come on in. I'll give you a, not a second chance. Who gave them their first one, you know? Yes, ma'am, you're going to ask this question. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is no solution to that except you have to abandon all desire for success. But beyond that, you have to abandon even efficacy. Does it work? In our culture at the moment, that's the thing. You know, does it work? Does what you do work? I'm not interested if it works. I know, and you know, what approach is right and true and just and good and loving. That's enough. Do it. But the minute you start to care how it's going to turn out, you will burn out, you will get cynical, you will dislike the people you're serving. Don't care about how anything turns out. It's liberating. If it all shuts down tomorrow, uh, St. Ignatius used to say this about the Jesuits. He said, the Pope could shut us down tomorrow. Give me 15 minutes. I'll be okay. You know? (laughs) Except I think he said it in Spanish. But, you know, it's... <laughs> but that's exactly the freedom you want to have. But there's a, there's a method to that madness. Because then you just go, yeah, I, I just want to do the right thing. And you know exactly what it is. You know what approach works. It doesn't mean you don't correct things. And, and you don't catch yourself. And you don't try to be more loving and, and more kind and, and, and I always talk about, I sign the book with a no matter whatness because I think that's what makes sense. No matter what, I am in your corner. Homies always say, till the wheels fall off. Yeah, I'm in your corner till the wheels fall off because they don't know what that is. That's the kind of God we have, a God who loves us without measure and without regret, a God too busy loving us to be disappointed. We want to imitate the kind of God we have, the God who is always greater, spacious, expansive, 
the God whose joy it is to love us. And that's where we want to be. I'm writing a new book, um, and probably in the worst way imaginable. Uh, I began with a title, <laughs> and, and I'm working backwards, you know. And it came because a kid was in my office, and, um, and I was kind of running it down to him, and I was telling him, gosh, you know, and I was, whatever it was, I was uh, giving him glech, as we say in Spanish. I was running it down to him. And he stops me. He goes, look, you're barking to the choir, And I loved it because it was a combo burger of barking up the wrong tree and <laughs> preaching to the choir. And I thought, that's it. And so that's the title of my next book, Barking to the Choir. <laughs> because on the one hand, it's about proposing something new. And, and people are longing. So how do we release our desire in, in clinging concern for the bottom line and substitute it for a concern for those who line the bottom. And suddenly it's, it's, a, it's a counter proposal to, to the world and what's comfortable. And it's to the choir, it's to folks like yourselves who are longing for something new and different to galvanize our imagination so that we can roll up our sleeves and enter the kinship of God now. Why would you wait if Jesus says, it's here? It's not the already and not yet. No, it's here. See it. Make it happen. Um, I don't recommend that way to write a book, you know, because it's uh, probably better to have some ideas first and then... Give it a title, but anyway. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was wondering if, um, like, I know that y'all didn't have, like, people to give y'all money and stuff when y'all first started. Like, how, how did you go about, like, getting resources and companies to fund y'all to start Homeboy Industries? Or, I mean... Yeah. 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 It's a. It's a. It was tough in the beginning because this was twenty, almost twenty-five years ago, when the demonizing of gang members was at its peak, and uh, and so those were the years. My first ten years were death threats, bomb threats, and hate mail, and and it's hard to even retrieve that now as a memory because that's not what's happened in the last ten years. So there's been a tipping point where people, L.A., the city, has embraced homeboy in a way that it never has. But we're a $14 million annual operation, so it's a tough thing to fund that every year. And um, though we, we engage in hope thousands and thousands of gang members a day, those who work for us, those who are in the pipeline, which is so many waiting, drug testing or orientation or selection committee, and all those who are in prison who are looking out the windows and said, maybe I'll go to Homeboy when I get out. All that has a singular impact on public safety. So people have started to see that that's valuable. But in the early days, you know, you have benefactors. You know, we had a movie producer who helped us with Homeboy Bakery. We had um, Power 106. Do you have a, that station? It's, but it's, it's owned by... They're all over the country. And they're, you know, rap and hip-hop. And, and years ago, they had a compilation tape that made a gazillion dollars. 
and, and then they started to uh, give money away and they, they paid for our silkscreen factory. So, you know, you got a lot of good people here who, who get this and will want to support Brotherhood Brew because that's exactly, you're putting people to work and it has an intentionality to it. And community trumps gang every time. And then you engage in, uh, you know, attachment repair and healing, which is part of the task uh, in any good community. Yes, sir. You know, it's funny, uh, I get that question occasionally uh, from the center of the country. Uh, and, and I don't mean you're, you're intending anything by it, but I, it's funny, I, I don't ever get that question, uh, but I can tell you geographically where I've gotten it. Um, and I, I didn't think much about it. You know, Homeboy became... Uh, you know, not anything, it's never anything pejorative, you know, I mean, heck, you've seen this t-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy, you know, and, uh, and people would say, uh, oh, were you taught by Mr. Smith? Oh, Mr. Smith, that's the homie right there, you know. Well, he's not a gang member, he's, he's a person you have a connection to. So when I'm in a room with uh, this movie producer, Ray Stark, and uh, I said, Long story short, buy this bakery across the street. It's abandoned. The guy's selling it. I don't know. We'll call it Homeboy Bakery. That, that's how much thought went into this thing. <laughs> that was my business plan, you know. <laughs> and don't try this at home, you know. And so, yeah, so Homeboy is really... The interesting thing about it now, years later, uh, that, yeah, it's gang member... And he's my homeboy. But it's also a connective word, you know. It's like homeboy, homegirl. Oh, that's the homegirl. That's the homeboy. Oh, he's the homie, you know. And, and it's broader than the person who's just identified with you in this same gang. It's, it's, it's connective tissue, you know. And that's what kinship's all about. Yes, one more. Maybe this uh, young woman with the shirt that says Jobs Not Jails, Homeboy Industries on it. Hi, Father G. <laughs> I, I, mine's more of a statement than a question. Um, first of all, thank you for what we do because we are able to take mission trips to you every summer. And by doing that, you've touched some lives, so much so that one of our kids is going to be coming and spending the summer with you as an intern. So uh, she's worked with Norma, and I guess if I was to pull a question out of this, is when are you going to bring Homeboy here? Because we have a whole lot of people that would do it if, if, if you brought Homeboy Industries here. And I just really want to thank you. The Holy Spirit's working through you and Thanks. through our kids now, too, because cause they're coming to be with you this summer. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And thank you for representing. You know, we, we decided long ago um, that, not long ago, maybe five years ago, especially when we moved to our headquarters, that we wouldn't become sort of the McDonald's of gang intervention programs. You know, that over five billion gang members served, you know. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> but what we have done is offer what we call technical assistance. So folks have come to us, Wichita, St. Louis, Spokane, Miami, uh, Pritchard, Alabama, and they've spent five days or whatever, and they kind of study, and we say, steal everything but our logo and, and start your own thing. Otherwise, the idea of Homeboy Industries being airlifted into... St. Paul doesn't sit well with me, you know, 
as and as St. Paul will go, well, what, what, what does Homeboy Industries know about St. Paul? So, so what I like more, and we were connecting before, is like, you know, to be part of a network, uh, you know, we're calling Homeboy Network because there are people who have kind of spawned these things from Spokane, uh, an organic uh, gardening service, um, City Cafe in uh, uh, Wichita, uh, community empowerment in Miami, on and on and on, places that we've, we're kind of working together. And so maybe we come together as a network every year and, and compare best practices and say what works, what doesn't work, what are you discovering as a difficulty or whatever. And then maybe get somebody to fund this network so that uh, we can share money around. Um, are, you, are you down for this venture? Yes, good. So anyway... Um, Thank you very much for your kindness, and I'll see you out there. Thank you all for being here. Uh, if you read the book, you will find out what Father Greg is going to do with what we're about to give him. Uh, it is a plaque that we give to all of our speakers, and it simply says, with thanks to Father Gregory Boyle for bringing faith to life, we thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Yeah.